probably not a good idea to wash down a frozen burrito with coffee. You're welcome, Neil. Eyewitness to Grief. This is Hell streaming live from our studio above a pool table in a bar. No, it's not as cool as a firehouse in Manhattan. It's just a apartment space above a bar in a mostly desi neighborhood. My apologies for our lack of coolness. This week's question from Hell is, what's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? What's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? And whoever we decide has the best answer wins a copy of a book we are featuring on next week's show, next Monday. Unwanted Spy, the Persecution of an American Whistleblower, CIA agent-turned-whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling, who will be our first guest on next Monday's live streaming show at 10 a.m. Podcast shortly after at the same time and same place. Thisishell.com. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Again, this week's question from Hell is, what's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? Alex, do you have any listener responses to this week's question? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got 87 of them oh, so geez. far. Uh, I think Jeffrey Epstein's going to come up in these. Mm. Uh, my original quest- uh, question from all was going to be, what do you think was happening on Big St. James Island? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, what is Hillary Clinton 2020 campaign slogan going to be? Kyle J says, thank you for your suicide, Jeffrey Epstein. Craig H says, more of the same. Brian H says, I'm back, bitches. <laughs> Meredith A says, you owe me. Jason F says, Epstein killed himself. <laughs> Who's that? That's uh, Jason F. <laughs> okay. Jack B says, I'm back. Chris C says, don't fail me again. Kevin W. says, anyone who doesn't vote for me is a Russian asset. Yeah, that's a good one. Jason L. says, Clinton Buttigieg 2020, better dead than red. (laughs) Curtis N. says, because F you, that's why. (laughs) Joshua L. says, this time I'm visiting Wisconsin. (laughs) Those are all really good. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to have a ton of really good ones throughout today's show, so keep listening. And throughout today's uh, show, to find out who wins a book we are discussing on next Monday's show, Jeffrey Sterling's Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. And we talked to John Kiriakou about Jeffrey on the show way back in 2015 or 2016. So if you want to hear that interview, you can hear that at our website right now, thisishell.com. All you have to do is look up the word Sterling, actually, because I think it comes up in the name of that interview's title. So far this week, we talked about America's favorite performance-enhancing drug, meth, when we spoke with Jason Pine, author of The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition, which is now podcast at thisishell.com, and I completely forgot to mention Previtin, because it's always fun to point out parallels between the United States today and 
the Nazis. If you're not familiar, Previtin was meth the Nazis gave to Germans for all their aches and pains for whatever ailed them. Norman Oler wrote a book called Blitzed, Drugs in the Third Reich, and a New York Times book review by distinguished historian Dagmar Herzog. Herzog writes, Previtin was a low-dose methamphetamine akin to present-day crystal meth. Oler starts from the contradiction between the Nazi leadership's vow to clean up the reputedly indulgent and pleasure-soaked culture of the Weimar Republic, constantly coded as Jewish, and the pervasive evidence that within a few years medical experts and military officials alike were pushing large quantities of Previtin meth on the population. Just like the right dog, right-wing dog whistles to this day, they were doing the exact same thing back then with meth in Nazi Germany. Herzog writes other document, older documents, the persistent intertwining of anti-Semitic rhetoric with the Nazis' war on drugs, the laws passed in 1933 that threatened addicts with imprisonment and sterilization, and the encouragement to neighbors and co-workers to denounce habitual users, especially of cocaine and morphine, to the police, like the rights race-based war on drugs, while completely ignoring the rise of the very illegal and very white OxyContin market that grew unchecked for decades. Yep, we're a lot more like Nazis than you think. We even got the same taste for meth. And now you know why. This is hell coming up on this week's show. We cannot repair our broken world. Being free of that hope to undo what has already been done can be liberating, leading to questions that confront the brutality of our current living experience. An experience that has been punished with an epidemic of mass loneliness, depression, drug abuse, and suicide, as our next guest points out. So what can be done? Novelist and social critic Curtis White, author of Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today, says the answer to that may lie in counterculture, which, despite what the media wants you to believe, has been extraordinarily successful historically and actually affecting real change. We'll discuss the promise of counterculture to save our planet from dying, and all of us along with it when we talk in a few to Curtis, who is the co-founder of FC2, a publisher of innovative innovative fiction run collectively by its authors. This is Curtis's second appearance on This Is Hell. He was on three years ago in November 2015 when he told us about his then just published book, <clears throat> We Robots Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. You can hear that interview by searching on Curtis's name at our website, thisishell.com. Curtis is professor of English at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, and is president of the board of directors of the Center for Book culture there. During listener feedback, a listener found the Charter of the Forest, which dates back to 1217 A.C.E., and it essentially gives the British people ownership over all of Britain's land, and that probably won't go over very well with those who privately own British land, which is most of it. We also heard from our listeners about our Patreon podcast, as well as the four-hour show we air every Saturday morning at 9 a.m., and have been doing so since 1996 on WNUR Chicago. Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM. Following what you have been writing to us, we will consider the idea that the imperial world economy no longer exists. The idea of Western or global North developed economies extracting value out of the global South and undeveloped, underdeveloped economies living off these riches as others suffer, according to some, in a is a thing of the past. With emerging economies like those in China, India, and Indonesia, the Western and Global North-dominated world economy would seem to be 
in upheaval. The problem is capital is still moving by the literal boatloads from the global south up north as it always has. We'll learn why the more things change, the more they stay the same in imperialism when we speak with sociologist Intan Suwandi, author of the book Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. Intan is a frequent contributor to Monthly Review magazine and has written for various publications on the political economy of imperialism, both in English and in Indonesian. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. We ruin the planet, and there's really nothing we can do about it. Okay, there is something we can do about it. We can stop being complicit in the system that's destroying our world and start participating in counterculture. Here to help us be hope-free and therefore actually have hope, novelist and social critic Curtis White returns to This Is Hell to talk about his new book, Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Curtis. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Curtis was on three years ago in November 2015. He was on to talk about his then just published book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. You can go to thisishell.com and search on Curtis White's name and you can find our interview with him from three years ago there. You write counterculture is a word that is fraught with associations, connotations, and mendacities. The word counterculture has baggage, as they say, freight and fraught derived from the same Dutch root. Counterculture is been ridiculed for 50 years in the mainstream corporate media as something that belongs only to the 1960s, to hedonist, weed-toking hippies, to communes, and to the failed social agenda of the high 1960s, no pun intended. To you, what explains that media storyline about counterculture being stuck in a conservative view from the 1960s? Well, um, it's um, largely a matter of uh, the corporate media uh, relentlessly uh, distorting uh, the meaning of the 60s and uh, the, the larger idea of a counterculture, which would include not only sort of the psychedelia and hippies, but also uh, the new left and um, the socialist activities over in Berkeley. You know, uh, Allen Ginsberg uh, used to call the Berkeley and San Francisco the represent representatives of the two tribes. Um, one was counterculture and one was politics, socialist politics. But he meant that the two were really part of the same thing. But that counterculture and socialist politics, we were talking to Miguel Martinez a few days ago about his book on the squatting movement in England and throughout Europe. And he was talking about how you need those two things to create a revolution. You need the counterculture. You need that that kind of counterculture project. But then you also need the politics of it. Is that do you think that is the same thing that counterculture isn't the revolution, but it's possible that it can be the revolution once it is connected to, as you were pointing out with Allen Ginsberg, socialist politics? Well, it, I don't know if it's a revolution, but in the words of Max Stirner, it is an insurrection. And he made a very, a very careful distinction between revolution and insurrection. Revolution for him implied violence and attempt to change the totality of the social and political order, whereas uh, insurrection implied uh, a going up or a getting up, he said, was his word, which um, by which he meant uh, creating your own world where you stand now rather than hoping from, for some ideal socialist future. 
can insurrection be as transformative as revolution? Ah, uh, we. I think we need to hope it can be. Um, I mean, we we need a a radical transvaluation of all values, as Nietzsche argued, and uh, that would could certainly be. Uh, achieved through revolution, although I'm not sure it's a it's a, a new world that we would want. Um, a, uh, counterculture practices the politics of refusal, of non-participation. Counterculture is impertinence and improvisation. But how difficult is it to? Because you say that you you know this is a an, a project to not be complicit within the world that we today exist, the brutal world within that we live within today. How difficult is it to not be complicit when the system you're trying to avoid is so is dominant as capitalism? Can we ever not be complicit in capitalism? Uh, the the problem isn't isn't so much whether we can be uh, free of uh, the capitalist order. The uh, problem is more uh, a matter of freeing ourselves from certain kinds of structures like money, the, or what Antonio Negri called the sociality of money, and or debt. To me, the uh, college debt problem in this country is is a matter of social control. It's not really just a problem of paying off those debts. It's a matter of, uh, it, it. I don't know if it was an actual strategy in the 70s, but it seemed to me like they understood that a lot of their enemies, capitalism's enemies, were coming from the universities. And so <laughs> what they did very cleverly, I think, is is make it, make college education both necessary in order to get a job and then very difficult to um, to go beyond in any free way, you know, choosing your own majors, et cetera, because of debt. So it's debt to me is it's a big problem with debt is it's a means of social control. You can't do what you want. You have to do what will get you a job uh, in order to pay the debt. Do you think then that debt is the number one, the leading provocateur to counterculture today? Do you think that all the things that we are seeing today, whether that's, uh, you know, Occupy or Black Lives Matter or Extinction Rebellion, do you think that all these at some level are all about debt? Uh, I don't know. That's a stretch. Um, But, uh, you know, what I'm interested in forms of social control um, and how to go beyond them in some sense. So I don't say that the process of, of rethinking counterculture will be easy. It will be very difficult. And one of the primary problems will be getting out of the sociality of money. But, I, and I, in fact, I think I would say at this point that it was a, a very, you know, unlikely, improbable problem and an insurmountable problem, except that I saw it myself in the, in the early 60s in, in the San Francisco area. You mentioned how uh, many young people now are offered the following. Learn to work with intelligent machines, with computers and robots or else. Never mind the conspicuous fact that to agree to that work not only has the effect of reducing themselves in their own eyes, but it makes them complicit with vast governmental and corporate structures that enforce inequality and have every appearance of being in the process of destroying the natural world. What impact do you think? Learn to work with intelligent machines, with computers and robots 
robots or else. What impact do you think that has on millennials? You've been teaching a lot of millennials of late. You've been talking to a lot of millennials of late. What's the impression that you have had? I don't want to you know, talk with a broad brush or anything, but what's the impression that you have had about the impact of, you know, uh, learn to work with intelligent machines, with computers and robots or else? Uh, well, I can only speak to the, I mean, I've been retired from teaching for 10 years, so I can't say that I've spent a lot of time with millennials recently, but those students who I've kept in touch with have had um, very similar kinds of problems in terms of getting a job. You know, they've, they've been prepared uh, through writing and studying literature, et cetera, and philosophy. They've been prepared for, uh, in their minds at least, a very different kind of life. And what they find now is that they're that they're boxed in. Uh, I, in fact, I just heard from one person the other day who said he he fe- feels trapped. And you know, waiting around the corner for those people with student debts, even if they have a good job, is the cost of living in the places where there are jobs. So in the San Francisco area, housing is prohibitively uh, expensive for. Most of the most of the millennials, except for those who've gotten in a very high level in the in the uh, digital uh, economy, but they feel trapped because you know they can't leave their job, they can't buy a house, and they can't proceed with their life in the way they want to. Not to mention that they also uh, are afraid to have children and pursue those sort of uh, family ambitions uh, that they might otherwise do. You uh, also quote the psychotherapist and social critic Paul Goodman writing in his 1960 book, Growing Up Absurd, Problems of Youth in the Organized Society. The question is what it means to grow up into such a fact as during my productive years, I will spend eight hours a day doing what is no good. But if it is no good, it cannot be sustainable, can it? If millennials are questioning the moral or ethical value of work before they even enter the workplace, how sustainable is the workplace? Uh, well, you know, if, if, they've, um, if they've got your, uh, you know, a noose around your neck, it's pretty darn sustainable. I mean, look at what's happening at Facebook and Google and the, and the big dot coms. And what the employees there are experiencing is a, is a radical kind of dissonance um, because they sort of understand the world socially in a way that they also understand that their uh, work or the businesses that, that, they, uh, that employ them do not understand. And that's become really clear with Mark Zuckerberg and, um, and Facebook. So, you know, they... Um, it's cognitive dissonance that doesn't have an, an outcome, you know. I mean, cognitive dissonance is usually thought of as uh, a part of, uh, you know, educational growth. You know, you, you, you enlarge your mind by having cognitive dissonance. But this is cognitive disson- dissonance at a dead end. Growing up absurd, like I was saying, it's not a recent book. It's from 1960. Since even then, even the towards the end of the beatnik generation, have young people realized our lives are absurd? Have all these uprisings, whether it was the beatniks or the hippies or punks in the 80s or whatever, have all these uprisings been about the absurdity of life under capitalism? Well, and I, I think that a lot of those things are still uh, present now, uh, but they're present more uh, symptomatically than really. So kids now, I mean, they take refuge. Uh, it's sort of a 
Buddhist term, taking refuge in the Buddha, but they're taking refuge in uh, things like indie music. So when their favorite alt bands are playing, they make sure that they're that they're at the concert, and it's a it's a form of uh, an opportunity of being able to live the life they'd actually like to live. They'd like to live as freely as the indie musicians play music, but that's not really um, something that they they can they can do m- m- on more occasions than the than Friday and Saturday night. Exactly. Uh, You write of the English romantics. Poetry created an alternative to a world dominated by facts, 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 as the character Thomas Gradgrind uh, insisted in Charles Dickens' Hard Times. Facts, facts, facts. And today it's learned to work with robots or else. Facts aren't technology, but they, like machines, challenge ambiguity, like algorithms as well. Is counterculture a drive to have lives that are less constrained, less controlled, less regimented, less about the certainty of facts and machines and about enjoying, even reveling in ambiguity and uncertainty? Certainly. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the problem is is that kids are growing up into a certain context now where from the earliest possible moment, you know, uh, at, at their mother's breast, so to speak, but certainly when they head off to school, um, they're given a worldview that is actually uh, opposed to all of those qualities that you just described and listed there. Um, and that's really hard. So something has to happen that, uh, that sort of wakes them up. That is a call to not only to consciousness, but to conscience. And um, that, I think that call is here now. Uh, and I think uh, it's climate change. Um, you know, talk about this is hell. Uh, what do you think people in California are thinking right now? I mean, with uh, all those fires and the and the reassurance, if you'll call it that, that this is the new normal. Well, how do you live into that future? Yeah, I know. It's, it's really rough. My brother's out in California. He's been telling me how bad it's been lately. Uh, is culture, is counterculture, is it part of or does it play a role in any kind of class war from no matter which era we're looking at whether the english romantics or the hippies is any is it is it part or play a role in a class war well it certainly did um with the romantics to a degree um you know they people like wordsworth and coleridge uh, very much had their future planned out for them. I mean, you didn't have a lot of career options. It was uh, either you were going to be the next lord of the estate or you were going to go into the military as an officer or you were going to go into the clerisy and, or in, uh, teaching or something like that. Um, and they rebelled against that notion uh, of a fixed future. And they were the first generation to do that. Uh, 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 Morris Peckham, who somebody I rely upon a lot, uh, calls romanticism uh, history's second chapter. And by that he means that uh, the first chapter was about cities, the organization of cities, and a very rigid notion of where an individual fits in in terms of uh, uh, identity, social identity. Um, But with the advent of romanticism, uh, and it helped a lot that that, uh, the monarchies and the aristocrats aristocracies and certainly the church was uh, were basically non-factors at that point or at least you could be a little free of them 
what the what the romantics decided was that I don't like any of those job descriptions. Uh, as Wordsworth said, I, he didn't want to be part of a paltry curacy. Um, and so what they did essentially was invent new social roles, uh, the primary social role being for them being poet um, or and, and later artist. I mean, until until the well into the 17th century, artists were just con considered craftsmen. They, they, they didn't have that capital A artist uh, thing. Uh, until the late Renaissance. And so um, the Romantics were part of that tradition, I suppose, as well. Uh, people who were declaring that they were going to be something else. In the same way, I mean, it's very similar to the 60s insofar as, as a lot of young people started growing their hair and saying, I'm a hippie. <laughs> Although they, they probably weren't, uh, they probably didn't create that word. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, they said, this is, ah, this is my role. I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be a revolutionary. I'm going to be an anarchist. Uh, I'm going to be an artist. Is then, is counterculture, is it all, is part of counterculture then always to elevate art? I think that counterculture functions sort of like the Pied Piper, I, I mean, art functions like the Pied Piper of Hamlin in terms of attracting people to alternative ways of living. Any counterculture that you can name was sort of guided by art. And that was certainly the, the case with uh, the 60s and music. But it was also true of um, uh, the Wagnerians, you know, Baudelaire following uh, Wagner. And, uh, um, you know, Wagner is, uh, essentially created a revolutionary, revolutionary art form, and that attracted people to him, not only for the sake of the pleasure of his art, but for the possibility that they could be participating in the construction of a new world. Does art then create counterculture or does counterculture create art or is that just a stupid chicken and the egg question? <laughs> uh, it's a zeitgeist question and I think most zeitgeist questions are not uh, answerable, but um, you know, it's a, it's a combination of things. For example, uh, in the 60s, there were a lot of, of social problems, particularly the war in Vietnam, um, that caused people to to think in very, in very existential terms, you know. So if I continue to live through this fiction that I've been born into, it's likely to get me killed. Um, so that's one thing. And so once they start blowing up the world as they know it conceptually, they start doing that through their art as well. You write that Keats was crudely criticized for being of the Cockney school of poetry, a vicious dig at his working class birth. But Keats critics understood something that was not obvious. This new breed of poet was a threat to their status and their interests. Does counterculture reveal the precarity of status? And is that what uh, you know, scares the status quo, that counterculture reveals how tenuous the status quo's grip is on power? Well, you know... To me, it seems like uh, the dominant culture is a, is, a, is a tissue of lies and fictions. I, I'm not that those two things are particularly diff different. Uh, I suppose that they're lies when they're, when they're destructive and, they're, and they can be fictions when they're more uh, self-aware and aware of the fact that humans uh, create their, their own cultures. Um, so 
Yeah, I, 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 I can't go much further than that. You write the romantics were war dodgers, blasphemers, and communalists, which is why they lived in fear of prison under the sedition and blasphemy laws that the Tories established after the French Revolution as a means of controlling revolutionaries, pamphleteers, atheists, and poets. Is counterculture more than simple provocation? What would you say to somebody who is just a troll on the Internet and, and insist that that is acting in a counterculture way? Uh well, there are ugly countercultures, that's for sure. You know, um, the Proud Boys are certainly an example of an ugly counterculture drawing on uh, sources that are basically not artistic at all, not aesthetic at all, not pleasurable at all, but that are but that are hateful and and violent. So, I mean, the Nazis were a counterculture too, from that point of view. But you know, we're talking. I'm I'm talking about uh, a a tradition coming out of the Romantics, uh, and that has been sustained at, in every phase of, of Western culture since that time, and that had a beautiful uh, blooming uh, in, in the 1960s. But that's not, that, that's not a story that the corporate media particularly wants to hear, because it makes, it makes counterculture seem like something more than a failure. It makes it seem like something that we should maybe even aspire to. A lot of people are complaining right now. Uh, there's been articles at Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting and other places that there are, are uprisings happening right now in Chile and in Ecuador and in the UK and in Haiti and in Catalonia and none of these and in Lebanon and none of these are getting any coverage right now, that, that, that these are not being reported whatsoever. Do you think that this is what we're seeing right now? This is counterculture, that this is... Uh, uh, an uprising against capitalism around the world by counterculture. Well, you know, I think it could, you could say you know, Hegel had this uh, distinction between the uh, the for itself and the in itself. Um, the in itself was you're doing the things that that uh, are the activities of an idea that you have, and the for itself is being aware that you're doing those things for a particular reason. So his ideal was the in and for itself. You're doing those things, and you know what you're doing. Um, I would say that you know most of these street rebellions are are, are pretty uh, spur of the moment improvisational. They're not planned in any way. And and you know if you ask them what they were doing, they would they would probably not be sure uh, what to say except that I'm doing this. <laughs> For which you can hardly blame them. So it is um, it, it's uh, it, I you could call it a a sort of uh, peasant revel, uh, revolt, although I. I hesitate to use that term, um, but it, what we should be striving to do is, is raising that work, raising those actions up to a place where we know what it is that we want beyond it. Has there been counterculture as long as there has been Western capitalist culture? Did counterculture occur in response to capitalism? Is counterculture the reflection of collective displeasure with capitalism? Um, to a degree. Uh, because uh, I I don't have a source for this, but it's my feeling that uh, capitalism, you know, uh, basically invented the nation state in order to protect itself from from whoever they thought they needed protection from, from their own workers, from other nation states, etc. But um, until the uh, 19th century, 
that an arrangement like that didn't exist. Basically, nation states didn't exist. I mean, in, in the thing that Italy knew best was, of course, the city state. And uh, thinking of themselves as Italian rather than as as a Florentian uh, is, is still difficult for them, I think, which is part of why they're so comfortably disdainful of national politics. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, you did. Uh, you write, in my 68 years on the planet, the only political thought that I have seen succeed to any degree in creating con- conditions where intelligence, mutual caring, beauty, and health counted for more than pro- power and profit has not been socialism or communism or democracy and certainly not capitalism. It has been counterculture. Counterculture is civil disobedience as a way of life. Why do you think counterculture succeeds when socialism or communism or democracy do not? What can counterculture offer that these political ideas, if you will, cannot? Well, the one thing it, it, can, it can offer is uh, hope to uh, live in a way um, that you want to live without having to, to fix the entire nation, you know? And that's sort of where we're stuck right now. We're, we're trying to figure out if socialism or a democratic socialists or the Democratic Party, God help us, and certainly the uh, Republican Party, God help us, um, that those things are going to fix the whole thing. And I say, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. I mean, just look at the details uh, <laughs> of uh, the daily news, and you know in your in your heart of hearts that this isn't going to happen. Um, it almost goes to the point of making me think that the Civil War was a bad idea. Uh, You write that the problem is all of the millions of people on this planet who lack a sense of place, a sense of belonging to a place that they know as their home, and all of the millions of people live in isolation, whether that means living under a freeway overpass or 24-7 in front of a smartphone, who experience firsthand our current epidemic of mass loneliness, depression, drug abuse, and suicide. In your opinion, why are these issues not being addressed? Is it because to address these issues... We would have to have an analysis of capitalism in the U.S. Capitalism is above criticism. Well, um, yeah, no, those, those things are being addressed in, in the uh, half measure way that that they're, they've always been addressed. And so there's, you know, some crocodile tears and uh, somebody makes a grant to some organization or another and takes it back a few a few years later. There's nothing serious about it. In fact, one of the conclusions I come to in the book um, is that the current construction of capitalism, at least in the United States, is not so much a war against workers as a war against people. So um, as wealth and talent becomes more and more concentrated in places like San Francisco and Seattle, you you have rent refugees going to Texas or wherever the rents are cheap, but there's no opportunity there. There's nothing for them to do there other than to have the cheaper rents. So... Um, yeah. And you're certainly not going to hear them be called uh, rent refugees in the media either. You write released by this impertinence from the burden of what others take to be reality. Counterculture proceeds to improvise an alternative. As the hippies put it, counterculture does its own thing. It improvises a counterworld in this way. It seeks both freedom and happiness. The media always asks activists what is their end goal? What are their demands? If those seeking an alternative are raising awareness of a problem, then they better have the solution, according to the media. Of course, 
There, if there were a solution already, then the problem may not exist in the first place. Does the status quo dismiss counterculture because it is improvisational, because it is not a structured response with bullet points and a step-by-step strategy? Well, um, you know, I, not to be, uh, you know, sort of looking at myself or feeling sorry for myself, but I knew in writing this book and, and publishing it with a small press that I wasn't going to get much in the way of attention from uh, from the corporate media. I mean, the corporate media is designed not to notice books like this. You know, I'm not saying that the book is true or the, you know, it would fix everything. Uh, I don't actually care about that. What I tried to do with, with this book is to tell a story that would uh, that would seduce uh, my reader to a degree, if you don't mind my using that word, uh, seduce them to wanting uh, something, N- recognizing that they want in both senses of the term, recognizing that they lack something that they that they need and wanting that thing. You, you ask, you want this impertinence, and impertinence is to not show respect, to be rude. That means not being civil. Is counterculture an alternative to civility, and what's wrong with civility? Because I've got a lot of issues with it. Uh, well, what's wrong with civility is that basically when you're, when, you're very, when you're civil, when you recognize the institutions that are actually doing the damage around you, you're aiding and abetting. So, you know, I, this book is pretty edgy in terms of the ways that it treats uh, a patriotism and uh, the, the, the idea of being an American. I would frankly rather not think of myself as an American. I was born here. I'm, I'm sort of stuck here and I'm going to work with the situation as it stands. But I'll be damned if I'm going to be a patriot. So, yeah, there's that kind of impertinence, the kind, you know, the, uh, the uh, yippies demonstrated it in space, as did a lot of the San Francisco bands back in the 60s, as did the romantics. Um, but uh, th- for me, that impertinence is life-giving. It gives, it gives people the, uh, an opportunity uh, to do other things like improvise. Uh, so, I, and I do see this around a lot. Um, uh, people, uh, smaller communities like towns under 100,000 are starting to see that the nation isn't going to do it and the state isn't going to do it. So they're going to do it entirely locally. We are speaking with novelist and social critic Curtis White, author of Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today. Curtis is professor of English at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, and is president of the board of directors of the Center for Book Culture. Three years ago, in November 2015, Curtis was on our show to talk about his then-just-published book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. And you can follow find that interview at our website, thisishell.com. Why do you see a path forward with counterculture? Isn't impeachment and ending the Trump presidency a way forward? That's, that's a pretty easy question. I thought I'd send you there, Curtis. Uh, yeah, no. Um, the impeaching Trump isn't going to end anything. I, I mean, I'll enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, it's, it, uh, especially as we learned in the last couple of days, uh, if it means that Hillary Clinton is going to run for president again, I don't think I don't think things are going to change all that much uh, if if Trump is taken down. I, what we'll be left with is just a an even more bitterly divided. Uh, country. Um, so, you know, I mean, maybe counterculture is uh, not entirely the right word for what I'm trying to describe. Um, 
But, you know, what occurred to me is that we need an alternative to the usual ways of reacting to, you know, encroaching fascism and the capitalist order and the horrors of the nation, nation state. And so, you know, my, in my experience, it was uh, the thing that saved me was being in the San Francisco area uh, in, in the late 60s. And uh, it was like, um, it called to me and I came running. And uh, I've been uh, sort of a counterculturalist ever since, but in a, a much deeper way, I hope, um, than um, the 60s itself. You write, this resistance will begin with ideology, with telling us that no, we can fix what's wrong with the world, and no, we don't need to live differently. Bad as things may seem, there is time for self-correction. Even worse, we will be told that any attempt on our part to live differently to create countercultures will not produce a better world. It will produce only familiar disasters. In short, we will be told that countercultures always fail. Is that true? Have countercultures ever succeeded in any way, Curtis, that we can see today? Of course. I mean, it's easy to see. Um, they, I mean, I would call it the triumph of uh, the I would call the last 200 years the triumph of uh, of counterculture um, because it's been uh, alive and vigorous, especially yet all the art world has always reminded us of, of you know, sort of the possibility of other realities, the possibility of other social structures, uh, uh, the possibility of other ways of living. Now, what those what those ways are for us, should we go down this road or try to, as I think we are, in one way or another, um, I, I have no idea really uh, um, what that it should look like. And I want to try to make that very clear. I have no idea what the countercultures of the future will look like, nor do I know what they should look like. All I know is that it's one way of talking about an alternative to what we have that uh, has some promise because it's thrived for so long. You write to hope that the system can be fixed is delusional, but to be hopeless is to die to our own innermost feelings of concern for others and for a world of living things that seems every day a little closer to fatality. It is better, writes Dar Jamal in his luminous book, The End of Ice, to be hope-free. You even state that you are now hope-free. Dar's been on our show like a dozen times, and we spoke to him about his book, The End of Ice, which is a fantastic read. And again, if listeners want to hear our interview with Dar on that book or any of our interviews with Dar, they can just go to thisishell.com. But uh, we also recently spoke with Corey Robin, and he was warning against falling for the conservative political strategy of futility and despair. How can we both be hope-free and not fall for the depoliticizing and disempowering project of futility and despair that the status quo demands? How can we both be hope-free and not hopeless? Well, um, I, I suggest uh, the um, the saying of, uh, of uh, Krishna when he was uh, advising um, Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. And what Krishna told uh, Arjuna was, work without hope. You don't need hope. You need to work. <laughs> and so we need to live in that sense, you know. I don't to hope for something would be to hope for the wrong thing, uh, as uh, Eliot put it, T.S. Eliot. Um, so I say work. Uh, one of the things that the things that is going to make counterculture necessary, I think, is climate change, because that's going to change 
climate change will change absolutely everything. And so we need to be, begin thinking not of necessarily of a, a, a socialist state, but we do need to be thinking about how we will be social. Because, you know, as capitalism pushes us away, it also pushes us together. You know, we're not alone. And so we need to take advantage of, of that fact and, and begin to construct uh, a, a worlds, many worlds perhaps, that, that will survive for one thing. I call it socialist survivalism, uh, that will survive, but, but also that will, will um, create contexts in which people will be happy to be alive, as, as strange as that thought might be to you. That is strange, and especially when I'm going to read this next quote here. You write, of course, we are not the first humans to have a vivid ap- apocalyptic imagination, a strong sense of an ending in the 14th century. There was the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War that accompanied it, destroying somewhere between a third and a half of humanity from China through India, Europe, all the way north to Iceland. Unimaginably bad as the 14th century was, human cultural evolution gained from it. Do you believe through embracing counterculture now, human cultural evolution can gain from the coming apocalypse of climate change? Can embracing counterculture insulate the coming apocalypse from human cultural devolution into fascism? Because that's the thing that I'm afraid, that's the direction I'm afraid we'll go in if we don't have some radical and transformative social departure from how we exist today, that this is going in the direction of totalitarian fascism and not, unfortunately, something that might be more utopian. Well, fortunately, uh, if uh, the climate situation uh, gets as bad as people are uh, expecting it to over the course of the next 30 to 50 years, um, you won't have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, fascism uh, and an autocratic state, because that state will be no longer functional anyway. And the activities of a lot of people in the uh, upper echelons, the so-called 1%, are are telling us that already, because they're making provision for where they're going to go after after the collapse of the financial structure and after the collapse of the climate and the collapse of uh, the nation state, you know, where are they going to go? What, what's going to, what are they going to use for money? And so this whole thing about uh, Bitcoin brothers, you know, and going off to, to Puerto Rico and New Zealand and, and creating these alternative kind of their, their own kinds of communes. Right. And also the idea of, of uh, you know, the Elon Musk's of the world thinking, um, that they can, sim- we can simply, they can simply uh, take a rocket ship to Mars and live there. So they're thinking in those in those sort of futuristic terms in an awful way, and we need to be doing the same kind of thing. Um, you know, even if it proves not to be true, I think that we'll create uh, living contexts that we'll be uh, very happy to know. You quote the historian Barbara Tuckman writing in her classic A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. Survivors of the plague, finding themselves neither destroyed nor improved, could discover no divine purpose in the pain they had suffered. God's purposes were usually mysterious, but this scourge had been too terrible to be accepted without questioning. If a disaster of such magnitude, the most lethal ever known, was a mere wanton act of God or perhaps not God's work at all, then the absolutes of a fixed order were loosed from their moral. Minds that opened to admit these questions could never again be shut. Once people envisioned the possibility of change in a fixed order, the end of an age of submission came in sight. The turn to individual conscience lay ahead. What new 
questions do you think our age of climate change provokes? What might we start asking about reconsidering, even criticize what has been above criticism up to now? Uh, yeah, well, you know, um, the 14th century had its uh, tottering stru- structures of power, and we have our structures of, of power, which um, could totter very severely in the in the fairly n- near future. Um, so, uh, will we emerge on a on a new age after that uh, collapse? Uh, you know, the age of Aquarius or whatever they used to say. Um, I ha- I don't know. Uh, you know, so but it's just a, it's just a matter for me of of how to live now the best we can um, without participating in our own destruction, and that means first. Uh, removing ourselves from a lot of the uh, social fictions, the cultural fictions that that do us harm, that limit us and limit the ways in which we can uh, understand our own world. One last question for you, Curtis. And as we do with each and every one of our uh, each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We have been speaking with novelist and social critic Curtis White, author of Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed: Reimagining Counterculture Today. Curtis is the co-founder with Ronald Suknik of FC2, a publisher of innovative fiction run collectively by its authors. And you can find our interview from November 2015 at our website, thisishell.com when we spoke to Curtis about his then-just-published book, We Robots, Staying Human in the Age of Big Data. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, as I was saying, it's the question from hell. Curtis, what is the current state of counterculture? How much has capitalism already, it's in its ubiquitous nature, how much has it already co-opted counterculture and turned it into a brand that just does nothing more but reproduce climate change-causing capitalism? You know, I, 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 I uh, that's very true. Um, that that capitalism has done its best to co opt uh, counterculture, and that you know goes back um, to the '60s. And certainly, um, the canonization of the Romantic poets and artists—it uh, was another co opting, I suppose, by a, a larger dominant culture. Um, so, you know, I could have come up with a different way of understanding a different term, but it seemed to me that it was too important to uh, stay close to uh, that cert- that tradition coming out of uh, uh, romanticism. I wanted to make sure that, you know, that's one of the important things about reimagining uh, counterculture is to imagine that it's not just something in the 60s, it's part of this long tradition that, you know, basically we still love. Uh, to the degree that we remember it anymore. Um, so that's why I, I uh, clung to the term. It seems to me like a pretty good uh, term anyway, uh, kind of like counter discourse, you know, and we need to invent those as well. So um, I'd be happy to see the term go away in favor of a better term, but I don't know what the better term is now. Curtis, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. I hope we have you back on more than or sooner than three years from now since our last interview. Thank you so much for being on our show, and people should check out your work. It really is amazing, not just this book, but your other early, earlier work as well. All right, thanks. Take care. Great. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is 
all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. The Western and global North dominated imperialist world economy that has been sucking resources and wealth out of the global South for centuries like a vampire. It's finally over. The exploitation of the poor to line the pockets of the already rich has ended, or at least that's what leading commentators like that commie economic geographer and uh, anthropologist David Harvey. Sure, we all hope that's the case, but our next guest will explain why, unfortunately, it is not in a few minutes. We'll learn exactly what is happening with the world economy, economy when we will be schooled by sociologist Intan Suwandi, author of the book Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism. This week's question from Al is, what's Hillary's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? What's Hillary's 2020 campaign slogan? And whoever we decide has the best answer wins a copy of a book we are featuring on next Monday's show, Unwanted Spy, the persecution of an American whistleblower. We'll be speaking with CIA agent turned whistleblower and the author of that book, Jeffrey Sterling. Be our first guest next week at 10 a.m. on Monday, streaming live right here at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after. Leave your response to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alex, do you have any more listener responses to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What is Hillary Clinton's 2020 campaign slogan going to be? Asborn H says, unlike Donald Trump, I don't drink Russian hooker piss. Vote for me <laughs> wow. to nuke Putin. Wow. Good luck fitting that on a sign on mm, your lawn. Mm. Uh, William C says, shut up and go to sleep. Hillary in 2020, do what you're told. You know what to do. Dan T says, I came, I saw, Epstein died, evil cackle. <laughs> Nick A says, waka waka narf. <laughs> what? That might be going over my head. Uh, Dan T says, Epstein didn't kill himself. And a lot of people really like that Epstein murder mystery. Uh, Jack W says, re-sisters with 2020 vision. Hillary Clinton slash Susan Collins 2020. Scott S. says, it puts the crown upon my head or else it gets the Trump again. <laughs> Who's that? As a Scott S. Joe S. says, here's Hillary. Josh M. says, Clinton 2020, free abortions for some, tiny American flags for others. <laughs> David T. says, we can do it again. Greg G. says, paid for by Trump 2020. What is Hillary Clinton's 2020 campaign slogan going to be? Chris F. says, Epstein definitely 100% killed himself. <laughs> Uh, it was funny when somebody did this on Fox News. It's less funny when everyone's doing it on our, on our Facebook comments. Uh, Braden S. says, the wokest bay on fleek. Hashtag feminist. Fleek? Nobody says on fleek. Well, Hillary probably. Yeah, she, I mean, she might know. Yeah. Uh, Prescient S. says, don't tempt me. Bob T. says. <laughs> don't tempt me. That's a good one. Uh, Bob T. says, four more years. <laughs> Wally R. says, Hillary, now more than ever. Uh, Arthur R. says, you say Hillary, I say fire. <laughs> Jacob J says, help me, help me. Oh, and Kim S says, W-I-M-I-P-A, which I should probably look up before I put out those uh, acronyms. So I'm yeah. not sure what that means. Oh, finally, one, uh, Gwendolyn G says, to heal our broken country, I promise to compromise with my political opponents to the point of advocating nearly useless reform. Mm, I don't think that sounds like a really winning phrase. <laughs> Keep listening throughout today's show to find out who wins a book we are discussing on next Monday's show, Jeffrey Sterling's Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. It's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Jim writes, hey Chuck, your pleas to cash have finally fallen on willing ears. I just signed up at Patreon. That's our subscription-only bonus podcast each week that gives This Is Hell the much-needed and much-appreciated support we need. 
Jim continues, I goofed, though, and given them my, didn't give them my address because I don't trust Patreon, and I'm stupid like everyone else, I guess. I sent my, if I sent my address, can I get some of those subvertising stickers? Thanks, Jim. Yes, Jim, sent us your mailing address, and he actually, we just got it right before the show, and we're going to send Jim some subvertising stickers. Everyone who subscribes at patreon.com slash thisishell not only gets our weekly bonus podcast, but they also get This Is Hell subvertising stickers so they can subvert public advertising, and $5 off all the This Is Hell stuff you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. And I think we're adding a This Is Hell flask soon, just in time for the holidays. We actually introduced it at this year's listener appreciation and anniversary party back in July. So if you were at that party, you are probably familiar with the This Is Hell flask. And it is just in time for the holidays. And I don't mean as a gift that you can give to somebody else. But uh, This Is Hell flask is perfect for you to sneak off from the nightmare that is the holiday season and take a quick snort to calm your nerves. We haven't checked in on what people are sending us via our Facebook page for a while at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. So let's see what people are messaging us there. Mickey writes, am I the only listener still wanting the four-hour This Is Hell podcast? When you first broke it up as interviews only with none of the fun stuff and studio stuff, seems like that's all back on the weekday releases. That said, I would still really enjoy the convenience of having the four hours it fits into my listening schedule. Mickey, every Saturday morning, we will have the four-hour version of This Is Hell at thisishell.com as we live stream the world broadcast premiere of This Is Hell, which is over the air on WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago's Sound Experiment. But unlike in the past, when, during football season, when the show would be abbreviated or entirely preempted, we now give you four hours of programming every week no matter the football or other sports programming schedules at our home radio station. In the past, in the fall, we would lose hours and hours and hours of programming because of sports programming. And the same thing happened in the spring as well. So Mickey, not only are we not stopping anything we've done in the past, we're adding to it, providing you with more This Is Hell every week than we have ever offered in the past. And more ways and days to listen. You can now hear the live show happening Mondays and Wednesdays for one hour at 10 in the morning, and two hours on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. You can also listen to each of those live streams as podcasts shortly after they are live streamed. You can then listen to all of those shows streaming live and over the air Saturday mornings at thisishell.com and on WNUR 89.3 FM at 9 a.m. as we have been airing now for over 23 years. Mickey also says, by the way, please pass on to Chuck that I loved him on the Chicago Michael Brooks show. It was released from behind the Patreon paywall, but I couldn't find it. Alex, did you know the appearance I did on the Michael Brooks show here in Chicago? Uh, in front yeah. of a let, let me take let me take a look for it and I'll share it. Um, oh, hey, Mickey. Also, I'm going to put out. Uh, I put out a four hour version that I give to Northwestern anyway to air, um, which used to be the sort of whole broadcast stream. Now it's just put together of the four shows or three shows. If you want that, I will put together a weekly RSS feed. So if uh, you want the whole thing put into four hours instead of three one hour 
three uh, shows. I'll put that together and uh, I'll send out a link to that to everyone. If you want to subscribe manually on your podcast to just get all of the shows in one big show, I can uh, I can do that for people. Yeah, I could not find the Michael Brooks show video anywhere. So if you can find it anywhere, Alex and post it. Oh, would the be video. Great. Okay, yeah, let me take. A look. Yeah, apparently it's already behind from out from behind a paywall. I went to his YouTube channel, Michael Brooks YouTube channel, and I couldn't find it there. That does not mean it is not there, because I just became frustrated and wanted to and the whole searching experience. Jim P., not to be confused with the earlier Jim who emailed us, also messaged us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, writing, hey guys, how about having a whole show devoted to the commons and commoning? Here's a brief quote about the Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forest from Idler Magazine. So the book review Jim P. sent starts... In his new book, Plunder of the Commons, economist Guy Standing demonstrates how much of the UK's public wealth has been redirected to 1% of the population through state-approved exploitation of everything from land and water to housing, health, and benefit systems to the justice system, schools, newspapers, and even the air we breathe. Professor Standing presents a positive manifesto for recreating a society based on community, public commons, and sharing. In this extract, he tells the story of the Charter of the Forest, the legal foundation of our rights to the public commons. They then quote the preamble to the 1217 ACE Charter of the Forest, which states, Know ye that we have given and granted to all free men these liberties following to be kept in our kingdom of England forever. Only listeners of This Is Hell would find a book on the Charter of the Forest, and not only on This Is Hell would you actually hear that book being discussed because it challenges everything about private property in the UK today. But thanks, Jim P. It's on our list of like 70 possible upcoming guests here on the show over the next several months. That's listener feedback. If you want to contact us and possibly have your email read online, on air, whatever we're doing nowadays, email us at chuck at thisishell.com or you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And we really got to catch up on all of our Facebook messages we've received. That's just a small sampling. So tune in for that over the next few weeks. Or you can direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's show, we'll re-examine the world economy and determine if the reign of the imperialist world economic order is over. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? What's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? And whoever we decide is the best... uh, answer wins a copy of a book we are featuring on next monday's show at 10 a.m live streaming here at this is the book is unwanted spy the persecution of an american whistleblower and our guest will be cia agent turned whistleblower jeffrey sterling again that's next monday at 10 a.m central time here in chicago you'll be able to hear it live streaming at this is and podcast shortly after at the same place leave your response to this week's question from hell at facebook.com slash this is hell radio i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz producing this week's show alex jerry live from the nightmare of want this is hell some believe the imperialist world economy is dead done never to be heard from again others see it still thriving but in a new changed form here to help us understand what is really happening within the world economy sociologist Intan Suandi is author of the book value chains the new economic imperialism welcome to this is hell Intan. 
Hello. In Thank Tana, you for having me. Thank you for having us, letting us have you on the show. Intan <laughs> is a frequent contributor to Monthly Review magazine and has written for various publications on the political economy of imperialism, both in English and Indonesian. And real quick, we want to thank listener Calvin for suggesting Intan as a guest. Uh, he took told us about all the work that you've been writing over at uh, Monthly Review, as well as your new book. So again, thank you, Calvin. Our listeners are the absolute best. You conducted interviews with top managers of two companies in Indonesia, and one of them told you, so all these big developed countries, they have their own protections against, protection measures to face globalization. But a country like us, we are so naive, so innocent, so young. We are a developing country. We don't have expertise in making this kind of regulation. Indonesia is the in the end becomes the target market. We have to open our market. People come in, some investments come in because our labor is very cheap. But in the end of the day, what happens? They're selling their products here mostly, and we don't have any protections. What protection measures to face globalization do big developed countries have that countries like Indonesia do not? Because I'm certain that people in the United States view the trade deals that we make as at least an attempt to be fair with their uh, trade partners. So what protection measures do, uh, do these kind of developed economies face when it comes to globalization that these underdeveloped economies do not face that we might not recognize? as protective measures? Uh, well, first of all, um, the, the protections that the, the executive that I interviewed talk about is, is the one that, that people um, often um, acknowledge, right? That some countries have more protections than others. And it is true. Um, and a lot of deals, um, the trade deals are not... Um, for the interest of of the developing countries or the periphery country, peripheral countries, um, they are made um, and uh, they are made to serve the interest of of the core countries. Um, uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of examples about these trades, but what is more important is that. Um, it's not the protection itself, but also the way um, global commodity chains are organized or are um, run um, in relation to this unequal power um, uh, globally. So um, what my work wants to put forward is that um, the, the, the business, the so-called business as usual itself doesn't, um, it, uh, doesn't, um, doesn't serve, um, I mean, sorry, the, the, the business as usual itself is already, um, uh, very unequal. It serves only the interests of global capital. And, um, it, it is, it is beyond just the talk of, 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 uh, you know, uh, political protections or trade protections that 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 we often encounter in daily lives. You write interestingly the opinion expressed that we uh, the quote I just read by the interviewee, a representative of capital from the global south, is predicated on the persistence of the hierarchical world economy, a phenomenon that is recognized by all classes in the south, but which has recently been the subject of a renewed debate among Western scholars, including those on the left. Why do you think that debate is being renewed now? What happened to cause a renewed debate among Western scholars and those on the left? How, how 
did the whole world seemingly change to allow for this kind of debate? I think um, in terms of the left itself, um, because uh, the most recent debates um, were uh, happening uh, because some scholars, including David Harvey, was saying that um, uh, you know surplus extraction has been reversed, um, and the, the 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 talk of imperialism is no longer relevant or useful. Um, but but this renewed debate has has a lot of history, right? From um, from the abandonment of of uh, talking about imperialism um, within the left itself. Not to mention, of course, the mainstream um, discourse. But within the left, um, so some people argued that, uh, you know, different different arguments. Uh, some people say that it, uh, imperialism is no longer relevant because you know there's a lot of emerging powers coming out, um, especially China, and they often talks about India um, or the BRIC countries in general. But also um, that um, some people argue that um, uh, global capital has nothing to do with with um, nation states anymore. So um, so this have encouraged people to think that imperialism has to be abandoned. Um, and uh, uh, recent debates. Um, argue back and forth about this and whether, you know, the fact that there are new emerging powers coming in means that, um, you know, they're the new imperialists, that the old imperialists uh, are obsolete, etc. So that's, that's, that's what's happening. Um, and also all of this um, conversation is rooted in, 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 in this new form of globalization, right? People are trying or have been trying to understand what is this this globalization that we're encountering now um, that emerged uh, from the 1970s? And some people call it neoliberal globalization, where global production, our uh, production is is conducted globally. If the debate is between whether we are in a post-imperial world or not, how would that make any difference to the most vulnerable, for the poorest, who are the most susceptible to the market? What difference does it make to them if we are living conceptually in a post-imperial world or not? How is the world viewed differently that might have a direct impact and effect on them? Um, it, it can happen in several ways. First of all, in terms of how we understand exploitation of labor. Um, that's one thing. The global production, um, what, what's happening in global production is that um, multinationals headquartered in the global north um, are subcontracting their, um, their work to the developing country. And um, they are benefiting from the exploitation of labor in the periphery. Um, so if, um, if you abandoned this idea of imperialism and you say that, for example, uh, extraction of surplus has been reversed um, and, uh, and global north does no longer extract surplus from the global south, 
So of course, it will uh, influence our understanding of the exploitation of labor. So what does it mean for 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 the workers in the periphery? Are they no longer um, exploited? Are 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 you saying that um, their their country is is also already like on on the same level as as the countries in the triad or which uh, where multinationals are based? Um, that's one, and of course this is related to the idea of expropriation or unequal exchange um, in terms of power relations among nation states. If you're saying that imperialism is no longer relevant, then again, the question is, are you saying that um, uh, power relation among nations are now or have become equal? That's, those are two things that we can think about. So, so is an argument of the uh, for the end of the imperialist world, world economy, an argument that supports the idea that we have seen the end of the imperialist world economy, is that an argument then that supports the current regime of globalization and free markets? Doesn't that show that globalization worked and, in fact, it did do the rising of all boats that it promised? Yeah, that that's absolutely implicit in the argument, right? Although, which is ironic because some people on the left um, put forward that argument. But with, 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 um, with the vocabulary of, of Marxism sometimes, which, is, which can be absurd. So, yeah, if you say that um, imperialism is, is, is dead in, in whatever um, forms, then of course you say that well the global economy the way it is now is working and and what is the global economy now is the capitalist global economy so yes absolutely so what is the mistake then that people and I don't want to pick on any one person but that people like David Harvey make when they are seemingly all of a sudden apologists for globalization, for free markets, what is the mistake that they are making that leads them to that conclusion? And because I'm wondering if it's a mistake that I might make, that others may make, that it's a simple, uh, simple mistake that you can make uh, logically. Right. Um, so there's a couple of things. Um, I won't pick up names uh, either, but. Um, so one one of the <laughs> common argument that that people say, including in the left, is that the, the the rate of exploitation in the global north is higher than the rate of exploitation in the global south, and this is only based on the idea, which is like um, what do you call it? This is really uh, a shallow way of of looking at the argument, is that. Um, because productivity is higher in the global north. Um, but of course, exploitation is not only um, uh, a case of, I mean, it's not only a factor of productivity, but also about wages. So that's one thing. Uh, they say because um, productivity is higher in the global north, then the workers in the global north are still more exploited than the workers in the global south. And um, another um, mistake is um, 
um, uh, Indian economists uh, Prabhat Patnaik and Utsa Patnaik, they they argue that people who uh, put forward that kind of false arguments, they don't really understand the concept of drain. So when you talk about drain of surplus, right, from the global south to the global north, you're not only talking about um, about flows of uh, of 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 surplus, but you all. On, uh, you, you're also talking about um, how you you have this exchange without equivalent. Um, that's what drain is about. That um, you get you 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 exchange more labor um, for less, and um, you don't get anything in return. And that's that's what what how the how the global commodity chains uh, work in a sense. It is that the global um, south doesn't get anything in return uh, when they, 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 pro uh, they produce um, uh, commodities for, for, for global capital. You uh, write about this idea that global value chains have ended and the imperial world economy, decentralizing it and replacing it with something else. You write that the answer, the response to all of that is to these questions is no, despite the seemingly decentralized networks and notwithstanding the existing complexities that characterize global commodity chains, the capital labor relations inherent in these chains are still imperialistic in their configurations. How are those capital labor relations still imperialistic in their configurations? And what explains to you why people don't look at those relations to determine the state of the imperialist world economy? Right. So um, that's another thing that I think I should have talked about is that because this global commodity chains look really decentralized, right? I mean, production is just globally. Um, uh, um, you you got labor from here, you got materials from here. Um, it's such it's such a complicated um, network that 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 people then argue because it's decentralized network, then power is also decentralized. But that's not the case, right? Because um, multinationals with their uh, oligopolistic multinationals still control these chains. These are not chains that are egalitarian or, you know, some people say this will provide opportunities for um, developing countries to catch up, etc. But no, these chains are constructed deliberately to maintain control of the multinationals. And they do it um, in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but before I, I go there, maybe I should say also that the point is, is that multinationals are, um, or as global capital, are taking advantage of wage differentials um, worldwide Right, and and they are searching. They continue to search for um, countries where where they have low unit labor costs. And if you see the data, it's very obvious that that's where production happens. It's where uh, labor unit labor costs are low. So the fact that um, global capital 
um, can freely go around the globe to find low unit labor costs while labor is still contained within borders, right? The, 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 the workers in the global south are not freely to like go anywhere in the world um, to work, at least relat- uh, relatively compared to global capital. So this situation alone allows global capital to um, continue um, taking advantage or exploit labor in the global south. And the way they do it is is really interesting, I think. Um, and a lot of people will see it as, as well, this is just how, how, how it's supposed to be. Um, a lot of bureaucratic um, um, components, and especially what scholars now say, uh, call systemic rationalization and flexible production. So these are really um, systematic um, process of production that that allows multinationals to um, uh, to continue um, their uh, accumulation of profit through exploitation. So I can talk about about these forms um, if you're interested. Actually, the next question I was going to ask you kind of fits right into that. You write, at issue is the extraction or drain of surplus from the poor countries by the rich countries and or their corporations. I argue that one way to understand the persistent imperialist characteristics of the world economy is through examining the exploitation that occurs in what Karl Marx calls the hidden abode of production, which in the era of global commodity chains is located in the global south. How well hidden is the global south as an abode of production? And is that an an intentional hiding by the market? (laughs) Yeah. So um, that's what what Marx said, right? Like to understand exploitation, you have to go to this hidden um, abode of production where usually, you know, uh, people will say no admittance um, unless it's for business. Um, and this is where where I, I wanted to go. When production is 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 done globally, um, it's also more difficult, right, to see this hidden abode, because especially, <laughs> um, say, if you if you buy products um, and in the U.S., of course, um, sometimes you don't even have that imagination to think about how this product or, you know, how this iPhone um, is, is produced. Um, and again, the, the conversation about global commodity chains in, in the mainstream um, discourse kind of hides that uh, exploitative relations between capital and labor on the global level uh, because arm's length uh, trades are very hard to to trace sometimes. Um, so, you know, when you subcontract something, um, multinationals will will just um, uh, give the order to to their suppliers, and then that's where uh, that's where production happens. And then you know you it's, it's sometimes very like complicated networks, and you you lose track of things. But um, so this hidden abode of, of global production is very hidden sometimes. Um, 
you know, you you get this idea of sweatshops. I mean, you know, recently in the in the last two decades or so, we've talked a lot about sweatshops, especially in social science, where um, you know mostly women workers make make shoes or t-shirts. Um, they got paid really low. They have really bad working conditions, and this kind of things have been exposed um, uh, quite a bit. Um, but it's not always about sweatshops, right? Even in production um, complexes where it's really far from sweatshops and the factories that I went to are far from sweatshops, even in the so-called high-tech industries or um, you know, so-called capital-intensive instead of labor-intensive industries, um, uh, what exploitation still happens. So it's not that, you know, they have um, this, you know, um, this stereotype of, of assembly lines um, with like supervisors behind them, um, watching them all the time and you cannot go to the bathroom and etc. It's not only that um, picture. But also just, you know, regular factories, very clean factories and mostly machines. And this is also something, mostly machines. There's only several, um, several, what do you call it, several um, divisions where they, they're more labor intensive. But even in this kind of factories, exploitation, of course, still happens. Um, even though it's not only through direct control, it's through different kinds of control. So this is the maybe um, the key components uh, that we should talk about is one is control of technology. Um, multinationals still control the technology of the production. They can dictate to the smallest details how production should happen um, in their supplier, uh, in their supplier factories or, or uh, compounds, um, there is no, there's very little technology transfer, and this is like what what the globalization um, cheerleaders are often saying, right? I mean, there's technology transfer; it's good for the developing countries, um, um, etc. But that's not what what's happening, at least not what I found. Um, technology is still very controlled. Uh, multinationals um, control the know-how, right? the knowledge, um, the technical knowledge um, in making their products, even when it's like um, high, high tech. So there is no innovation really in, 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 in the supplier side. What they do is that they just receive orders. Um, and yes, to the smallest details. So control of technology. And also, um, they have a lot of specifications or the way they do business that really show how, um, how tight their control is. Um, they can dictate what price they want. Um, and because multinationals are what what my uh, participants call um, you know a list clients they will do anything to get business from them and even if that means that they will get lower profit compared to having local customers um, 
because having multinational clients are really important for their business. It will be some kind of a brand. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you have uh, multinational clients, then you will get um, you will get a lot of repeat orders um, from them and also from other customers. So you kind of like it's 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 a guarantee that you'll do good business. So because of that, multinationals can control everything. They can they can like I said they can, they can control your price. They can control your profit margin. They can say I don't want this material. Um, you know, from this this kind of supplier, um, you know, I will introduce you to this supplier, to that that really small detail, and that's also that's of course uh, difficult for for um, the suppliers um, because it will it will disrupt their 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 own uh, procedures, their own um, regulations, etc. So, so what, those are two examples. What happens to capitalism then when it's the end of competition, the end of innovation, and there's so many price, profit, and material controls by such a small group of people? What happens to capitalism? What happens to the market, especially from the perspective of those who support capitalism? What happens to the greatness of capitalism when there's no longer the innovation, the competition, and all of these price, profit, and material controls? <laughs> yeah, it... it well, what I can what I what I can say is that capitalism is not what you think, <laughs> or it's not it's not what 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 people perceive, right? I mean, in, especially in terms of competition, because uh, what happens now is we were having a monopoly capitalism, and um, this is global capital with monopoly monopolistic power. Um, and uh, competition still exists in really like limited um, understanding, right? It's competition among them. Uh, sometimes there's competition among the this um, um, monopoly. I mean, sorry, <laughs> sorry, com- uh, competition among multinationals themselves, um, or also competition among suppliers right that that's the one that's that's still very um uh, very profound is that uh suppliers will compete against each other um to get multinationals uh, as their clients so yeah that's that's monopoly we are speaking with sociologist intan suwandi author of the book value chains the new economic imperialism Intan is a frequent contributor to Monthly Review magazine and has written for various publications on the political economy of imperialism, both in English and Indonesian. This is Intan's first book. She recently received her Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Oregon. You write imperialism has several interrelated aspects, and one of them you mentioned, the one that you're very much concerned with, is global exploitation along with expropriation or appropriation without an equivalent of labor and capitalist production, particularly under the domination of multinational firms emanating primarily from the core of the system. So has our old imperialist world economy then? been replaced not by China and India or other growing economies, 
but by multinational, transnational, even global firms that are located within the nations of the old imperialist economic world order? Is it not that the system has decentralized, but it has been re-centralized in a private corporation rather than a nation-driven way? So one of my arguments is that no, it's not that. So the fact that... um, you know, imper- the, the superpowers are not replaced by the emerging countries um, doesn't mean that um, imperialism is just about imperialism uh, in relation to global capital, right? The point is global cap- the most powerful um, components of global capital um, is is the multinationals is in the form of multinationals and still headquartered in the global north and this means that they are still related to power relations among nations the fact that uh, these multinationals are from the US or western europe con- european countries or japan um mean that uh, of course that's there's a meaning to it right it's not that they 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 have such correct characteristics um because of nothing so um a lot of uh power relations amongst i mean power relations among states are still pretty much relevant when we talk about imperialism especially um, because of economic processes um, that happen, right? Because labor is located in these countries that are not in the triad, um, and capital are located in, um, or are from the triad, um, means that um, uh, extraction of surplus um, is still going on um, the way the way it is, uh, we extract surplus from the global south. And a lot of this um, value that is captured is not recorded um, in the GDP of the global south countries, but uh, it's, loca- it's recorded in the GDP of global north countries. And also global north countries um, are still um, benefiting from from a lot of things like taxes. If you sell um, the iPhone or you know a T-shirt in 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 Germany or in the U.S., uh, you get the you get the taxes from the sales, for example. So um, it's not only um, in relation to capital, but it's also in relation to 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 states. Well, that's really fascinating. You you write dominant companies, giant multinationals within the chains extract surplus. <clears throat> excuse me, extract surplus value through various mechanisms of control, both in terms of controlling the production processes of their dependent suppliers, and in terms of controlling the labor process of workers employed by these suppliers. And you've touched on this some of this already. Their goal here is to make sure that unit labor costs are stably low, even in cases where wage costs are increasing, such as the increase in minimum wage issued through governmental policies. Can Control mechanisms are instituted to allow global capital to maintain a low unit labor cost by making sure that productivity can be increased. Uh So 
But we hear that wages are increasing for those in developing economies. Are labor <laughs> unit costs, are wages increasing? Does that wage increase have an impact on the imperialist world economy? Are wage increases in developing economies challenging the imperialist world economic order? Um, so there are two, maybe two layers to this. First, you say you can say yes. They 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 affect capital in terms that they make them nervous sometimes, right? Um, that's why whenever there is a wage increase, this is wage alone, wage increase um, in in say in Indonesia um, or in China. Um, you know the capital henchmen. I call them the you know. Um, Asian Development Bank, World Bank, they they issue um, reports right away, saying, "Oh, you know, you guys don't, you know, don't <laughs> increase your wage or wages or minimum wages. You know, it's really bad for you." Um, and they will have a bunch of justifications um, to uh, with that report, um, with that uh, suggestion, quote unquote, not to increase wages. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, that, that makes them um, a little bit nervous. But also what's most important is that whenever there are wage increases, what they want to make sure is to increase productivity as well. So um, at the firm level, this is an example. Um, my One of my interviewees said, well, you know, um, we, because when I was doing the research, there's quite a bit uh, of hike in minimum wages in, in Indonesia. And I said, well, does this, uh, can you actually ask for like a higher price then uh, from your multinational clients? And they said, no. Um, they will say, yeah, we, we know that wage increase, but um, that means you have to increase your productivity as well. <laughs> And that's, that's what, what they always do. So they make sure that unit labor cost is still low or stably low by, um, by increasing productivity whenever there's a wage increase. And this, um, this way of increasing productivity is pretty much um, controlled as well. From uh, by multinationals through this this form of flexible production or systemic rationalization. So, what they can do, for example, is um, uh, to demand different forms of flexibility so that they can externalize cost and. Um, uh, and this kind of uh, production, flexible production, will often um, increase control over the labor process, right? To make sure that um, that workers uh, on the factory floor can have higher productivity, and they can be done in 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 many ways, and and a lot of times in ways that are very that look benign, right? Like like enforcing incentive systems. Well, if you if you work well, then you get more incentives, you get more money, um, for example. Or they can also um, impose international standards 
um, that that you know that will have the mask of um, you know good for well-being of workers, for example, while it's actually a way to make sure that workers are productive, um, and that will keep their unit labor costs low. Now, what happens if the unit labor there's an increase in unit labor costs? Then, of course. Um, this kind of global commodity chains um, allows already for global capital to be able to get out of 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 that node, right? Of 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 that specific country, say China, they can get out and uh, move to um, another country where unit labor cost is lower, and that's what's what has happened um, throughout the decades. Why does that mask that you were just referring to? Why does that mask work so well? If you can see beyond that mask, what explains why, let's say, the people who are supposed to be informing us within journalism, why can't they see through that mask? Oh, yeah, well, I guess there are a lot of possible explanations. Um, But one thing is, of course, ideology um if you are if you're somebody who 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 thinks that exploitation is there's no wrong there's nothing wrong with exploitation that or say if you're a person who who um you know who thinks that everything um is equal it's an it's a matter of equal exchange you you sell your your labor power and you get wages and that's it like a lot of people um believe then yeah you probably won't see this as as something problematic right um but also i don't know i mean in terms of (laughs) um international say international standardizations um they will put forward um, languages that will make you believe that this is about workers' safety, right? This is about workers' well-being. We want to make sure that um, everything is conducted as 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 the the guidelines say. But but that's why you need a critical lens, um, sometimes a radical lens. To see what's beyond that or what's behind that, um, when you have um, when you have a workforce that is um, uh, that is um, healthy, and when you have a workforce that goes to work every day, then it means that they are they they are able to increase their productivity and. Um, and and behind that is the logic of um, of capital, right? To to make sure that their their workforce can go to work every day, can increase their productivity, um, um, etc. You write, we have seen the formation of a global labor force concentrated in the global south, where there were 541 million global industrial workers in 2010 compared to the 145 million who lived in the global north. Especially in East and Southeast Asia, manufacturers became both 
or became central both in exports and in production processes beginning in the 70s and early 80s. Many developing countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, experienced an increase in their manufacturing output shares. So why does that not mean the power has shifted to these countries? After all, all these countries have the manufacturing jobs that places like the United States don't have anymore. So why doesn't that uh, just state that this means that these countries have now have the power that we no longer have, that the United States lost? Well, they have the jobs, but that doesn't mean that they prosper. Um, and... As I, I explained earlier, um, first of all, going to, um, you know, having these jobs in the global south, it just means that um, um, the, the, the workforce um, is exploited. Um, they are producing surplus value for global capital um, because, because of, of, of how uh, this produ- capitalist production works. And um, also what happens when, when, things, when, when, when jobs go to the global south, it's not just like, oh, they go to the global south. Um, but what, hap- uh, what does that mean for, for the countries in the global south themselves? That means urbanizations. Uh, that's one, right, uh, people are um, uh, migrating to the urban areas, got absorbed in factories, um, moving from their, from their uh, villages, um, and that also uh, create a lot of problems. And that's, that's um, what happened in China, right? Um, and um, this, this um, uh, urban migrant, um, uh, migrant labor, um, and um, they, uh, it's, it's a form of super exploitation of, of these people. Sometimes they're not even paid um, enough to, um, um, to cover their subsistence. So um, that's what happened. And, and it's not only, of course, about labor, it's also about the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a lot of times this kind of uh, shift is accompanied also by, um, you know, uh, changes in regulations, um, um, moving away from uh, from development from their own for for this country's sake to to different forms of 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 other things, um, um, and that that really disrupts. Um, these countries themselves. So those are just uh, some aspects that we need to think about um, when when we are told that, well, those people get the jobs, um, but that doesn't mean that they prosper or that that's good for their well-being. 
You write a lot about uh, foreign direct investment, and you write as the size and global reach of multinationals have grown, their strength and ability to accumulate capital have also been enhanced. This has demanded a new structure of management intrinsic to their evolution as multinationals. The patterns of power and their authority can be clearly seen in one of the main processes involved in offshoring foreign direct investment. Displacing portfolio investment, FDI became primary after the Second World War, especially in the realm of manufacturing. FDI is a way to penetrate foreign markets. They allow firms from the global north to compete in foreign markets directly rather than through exports only. In addition, they also allow these firms to, quote, enter into the foreign trade channels of the competing powers. Was foreign direct investment then not about investing in those developing economies, but taking over developing markets? Yeah, that's one, that's one way to say it. It's overtake, uh, yeah, overtaking their markets. Um, but also foreign direct investment means that you, um, a lot of time multinationals will, um, have their subsidiaries there, um, and, 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 and do their production, there, but actually, FDI is is only part of the story, right? Um, the the more uh, complicated, the more um, and 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 thus unseen sometimes is is the arms length trade, and arms length trade. So even FDI flow keep increasing um, the flow to the developing countries, but what is even uh, more complex is the arms length trade. Um, in 2010, arm, arms length contracts generated two trillion in sales, and much of it in developing countries. And then, you know, ILO in 2015 um, published a report saying that one in five jobs within 95 to 2013, one in five jobs worldwide linked to. Um, arms length trade and um, and while this form of of trade is is good for the companies they create they increase productivity and profitability they don't they don't have the same good effects on wages um, so people who get the jobs because of this investments, right, e either direct or through arm's length um, subcontracting, um, workers are not the one who benefit from these forms of investments. And so <laughs> a lot of times, like, the whole country um, um, doesn't really benefit, except for maybe, you know, some few uh, people, the elites. I hate to use the word naturally, but I'm going to anyway. Is capitalism naturally and inevitably always seeking uh, being in a state of monopoly? I'm not sure if it's naturally, um, but you can see it uh, in a way that it's, it's different stages, right? Different phases, you can say, of, of capitalism. But um, the... There is a, a tendency for centralization um, of capital, um, and um, that's what has happened in this era of, of monopoly capital. 
One last question for you, Intan. We've been speaking with sociologist Intan Suwandi, author of the book Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism, which is absolutely a fantastic work and all of our listeners should check it out. We want to thank Calvin for turning us on to Intan's work. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Intan, and our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what happens if money, if capital and labor had the same mobility? Would that possibly save capitalism? Um, globally, you mean? Exactly. Right. Um, safe capitalism, uh, in, in what way? Sorry. Uh, from its, uh, you know, inevitable and ultimate demise, right? It's going to be falling from inequality and all of the, uh, uncomfortable displeasure is going to put us all through due to the massive inequality <laughs> that keeps growing. So can we just save all of the problems that are facing capitalism around the world just by giving capital and people the same amount of mobility? So the answer is, I think, no, um, because even though maybe, you know, the exploitation um, will not be um, as bad, quote unquote, um, but the, you know, the same ability of capital and workers won't stop the logic of capitalism itself um, to, to accumulate uh, profit and accumulating profit is never a neutral process. Um, it always involves um, exploitation and expropriation in various ways. So it may be, um, the picture may be different than, than the current you know, global economy or imperialist uh, global economy, but it won't stop. Um, uh, it won't stop um, capitalism from being what it is and will create misery for a majority of people and only benefit um, a small group of people. On that happy note, Intan, it has been a real pleasure speaking with you. This really is a fantastic book. And like I said, all of our listeners should pick up a copy as soon as they can. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Yes, thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing today, Alex Jerry. This week's question from Al is, what's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? What's Hillary Clinton's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? Whoever we decide as the best answer wins a copy of a book we are featuring on next Monday's show at 10 a.m. Central Time here in Chicago. The book, Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Our guest will be its author, CIA agent turned whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling, who's going to be our first guest next Monday on our live streaming 10 a.m. show podcast shortly after at the exact same place, thisishell.com. You can leave your response to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Still have one last chance to win. We're going to be doing Announcing the winner right now because a whole bunch of things came up this week. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do tomorrow's Wednesday show. But we will be back Friday at 10 a.m. with our Patreon podcast. Alex, do you have any more listener responses to this week's question? Oh, yeah, you want them all now or you want to break one up? Uh, 
Uh, why don't we do half now, and then I'll ask you the other half later. Okay, Warnell says, oh, sorry, the question is, uh, what is Hillary's 2020 campaign slogan going to be? Warnell says, who is this Hillary you speak of? Does she <laughs> speak the language of investigate Nazis and clean water for everyone? Perhaps I'll be interested. Perhaps not, Warren. Gwendolyn G says, not like the other girls. <laughs> Trisha C says, pantsuit nation. Garrett S says, Clinton 2020. Epstein did kill himself. Jesus. Uh, get ready, Chuck. Uh, Dan O says, Hillary and Pete's bogus journey. Stephanie S says, Medicare for all will never come to pass. <laughs> Donald nice. H says, I'm going to give this nation one more chance, and you better get it right this time. <laughs> Samantha C says, me, not you. <laughs> Wait, who said that? Uh, Samantha C. Uh, Christine W says, if at first you don't fool me, try shame on me. <laughs> Pete V says, Hulk smash. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. John C says, I'm with the hearse. <laughs> Eric T says, wronger together. That's a good one. Oh, uh, that's good. Uh, Alan G says, what's happening? <laughs> Mark S says, the one and only original pretend progressive. Bradley R says, it's not about you. Doug H, the Doug H that's been on the show before, says, this time it's really my turn. <laughs> Doug Henwood, look at that, chiming in on the question. Uh, Court H says, Shane Gillis must be executed by firing squad for his crimes. <laughs> Mike M says, I'll fight for the professional middle class. <laughs> Tony C says, I whiffed her. Oh, man. <laughs> Tony. Uh, Luke H says, lock me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, what is Hillary Clinton's 2020 campaign slogan going to be? John T says, no asset, no asset. You're the asset. <laughs> Shane M says, vote for me or else. Adam M says, tune in on Wednesday morning to find out if I've won. <laughs> uh, Rowan W says, I'm with him. AB testing to finally get it right 2024. <laughs> uh, Dennis H says, it's my turn again. Uh, Rogue R says, viva la centrism. Ooh, that'd be a good shirt. That would be good. Uh, what is Hillary Clinton's 2020 campaign slogan going to be? Don't let Blank's death be in vain. Fill in the blank with the name of any of the numerous people connected to the Clintons who have died mysteriously or suspiciously. David K says, because we because we the boomers haven't effed the country all the way up yet. Chris H says, my dog has no nose. What? It's a joke. Have you looked that one up yet? No. Someone else mentioned it. Uh, Timothy C says, once more with feeling. Derek K says, I'm going to need to speak with your manager. <laughs> Pete D says, Bernie, nice guy be ashamed if something happened to him <laughs> as a pete d uh peter j says this time for sure hillary 2020 daniel f says the original liz warren <laughs> kcc says hindsight in 2020 daniel h says i am that i am hillary clinton 2020 <laughs> wow jeff d says i get it i hate me too <laughs> Uh, Robert D says, keying off Madeleine Albright's very successful outreach from the last election, I'd like to go with 20, Hillary 2020. There's a special place in hell. Ryan H says, the end of climate change as we know it. <laughs> Chris C says, I find your lack of enthusiasm disturbing. <laughs> uh, Adi S says, neoliberalism like herpes. Ronaldo M says, why am I doing this again? I have no idea. <laughs> Hillary 2020. <laughs> Joshua J says, baby adrenal glands for all. <laughs> Fabio L says, happy birthday to this future president. Uh, Vegard H says, this is hell. And Sebastian M says, vote for me or get Epstein. <laughs> do you still have more? Yeah, I've got a couple more. Do you want to do something else? Or uh, let's just, uh, let me uh, join us tomorrow. 
and every Wednesday evening for This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet that's more a drink and think. Meet the staff and crew of This Is Hell, meet other listeners who you definitely share something in common, and that's listening to the show. We have seen plenty of friendships start at Office Hours, so it's a great place to meet people you likely like. Office Hours happen every Wednesday evening at the bar downstairs from where our studios are and where I am sitting right now, and you are going to want to be at this week's Office Hours because... I am going to be celebrating a lot. Drop by tomorrow, get some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public ads. See how all our listeners are subverting ads by going to our Instagram account, at This Is Hell Radio. And if you remind me, I will gladly give you a show-related book just for hanging out. We also have our store open upstairs. So if you want to see any or all of the merchandise that we have to offer at thisishell.com when you click on support, you can see that uh, here on Wednesdays during off hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, up on the second floor. And remember, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you get all of our merchandise for a $5 discount. All right, Alex, what are the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell? Also at office hours tomorrow, I'm uh, test running a poblano corn pudding that I'm trying out for Thanksgiving. So if uh, you want some free-ass food, oh, sweet. come by. Uh, Jan R. says, send her back. <laughs> uh, what is Hillary Clinton's 2020 campaign slogan? Tamara H. says, Effing up healthcare reform since 1993. <laughs> Pete B says, whatever her slogan is, her appeal will be to those who dream of the first female president. I can't think of a single redeeming quality which might carry her through an election. Uh, Refreshing? No, no, sorry. I'm trying to figure out uh, how someone's, to read someone's this. Someone's name is in another language that I am I'm not really sure, but uh, they wrote hilarious isn't it hillary hilarious oh, isn't it we don't even care what their name is well, okay i'm not that's chuck saying that not me i don't want to get in trouble uh michael p says no comeuppance <laughs> uh curly b says four more years because that's what trump will get if she or warren are the democratic nominee i can't wait till she drops out uh D- dimitri a says jeffrey epstein was either murdered or is still alive <laughs> Uh, Lucy W says, okay, boomers, let's Pokemon Go FTW. Eric T says, maybe they'll bite this time. Uh, via email, oh, couple, well, just two more. Via email, uh, Justin D says, what happened part two? It's happening again. And uh, KCC says, Clinton 2020. What? <laughs> My answer to this week's question from hell, what's Hillary's 2020 presidential campaign slogan? I was trying to figure out something with skin in the game, because that's one of my most hated phrases that she's ever used. So I was thinking of something like literally have skin in the game. Something I, I couldn't come up with anything. So all I had was little hope, no real change, but better than Trump, right? That makes this week's winner. Let's see, Alex, we've got... Jason F. saying Epstein killed himself. Curtis N. saying because F. U., which I really, really liked. Uh, Scott S. says it puts the crown upon its head or else you get Trump again. Prussian S. saying don't tempt me. Uh, Samantha saying me, not you. <laughs> That's really good. Uh, Eric T. Longer together. Uh, uh, wronger. Together. Wronger. I thought longer. I meant wronger together. Um, Luke H. Lock me up. And Dimitri A. Epstein questioning whether he is dead or alive. <sighs> I don't know. Alex, it's up to you. Curtis N. saying because F you or Prussian S. saying don't tempt me because those are short, you know? Uh, my favorite uh, was uh, Wronger Together. Wronger Together? 
All right, let's go with Ronger together. Uh, so that means, Eric T., you are the winner of this week's Question from Hell, and you will be receiving Jeffrey Sterling's book, Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. We'll be speaking to the CIA agent-turned-whistleblower, Jeffrey Sterling, as our first guest on next Monday's show at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time here in Chicago, so tune in for that. News that scares the news. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. So, Alex, we know that Jeffrey Sterling is going to be on our Monday one-hour live streaming show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com. Do you have any idea of who's on next Tuesday's two-hour show beginning at 2 p.m. Central? Uh, yeah, we have one of the people already booked, and that is uh, Wendy Brown. Real excited about this. Oh, yeah. I've been working on this for a month, trying to get her on. Uh, and she'll be on to talk about her book, In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. And nothing yet for next Wednesday, nah, right? That's still working on we got to figure out the Wednesday slot stuff. I'll talk about and it. And sure. uh, what about Jeffy? Do you know what his availability is in general anymore? Nah, he's, uh, he's hinky all month. Oh, really? So uh, I'll try. Oh, but just for the month. Yeah, yeah. He just picked up a new job that he's just doing this month. So it's been kind of tough. But uh, let me check with him. Okay. All right. So I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, First of all, congratulations to Eric T for winning this week's Question from Hell Prize, Jeffrey Sterling's book, Unwanted Spy, which we'll be featuring on next week's show on Monday. So we want to thank Eric T for participating and congratulations on winning. Just send us a message via Facebook at This Is Hell Radio and uh, we will uh, with your mailing address and we will send you a copy of Jeffrey's book. I want to thank in- sociologist Intan Suandi, author of the book Value Chains, The New Economic Imperialism, Novelist and social critic Curtis White, author of Living in a World That Can't Be Fixed, Reimagining Counterculture Today. Thanks to Professor of Anthropology and Media Studies at Purchase College State University in New York, Jason Pine, author of The Alchemy of Meth, A Decomposition. The word of the week from that meth book was commensality, the practice of eating together or a social group that eats together. This week's hangover cure is... The classic Brewer's Cure, a four-count of bourbon mixed with a mug of first runnings, the heavy wart extracted before sparging your beer. (sighs) All right. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.